I'm trusting for turnarounds in a lot of our lives this year in some critical areas. Maybe a turnaround into a new opportunity, maybe overcoming an addiction, turnarounds in our lives. And uh, this, this is why First Samuel's really been on my heart, and we're taking the first part of this new year to walk through turnaround moments that we find in the book of First Samuel, starting with a young mom-to-be who prays earnestly and has a son by the name of Samuel who leads a great spiritual turnaround in Israel. And then, as we will see today, the handoff to another generation. And I've entitled the message today, Cheering for a Generation. I want us just to cheer on a generation. If you're under 30, I'd love the privilege of just having you gather at the altar here at the end. And we want to pray over you and bless you if you would like to be a part of that. If you're over 30, it's not your fault. This stuff happens. Suddenly dawned on me recently. I guess I've always, always known it, but it just sort of dawned on me. Man, my birthdays keep coming about once a year, and it just is terrible. But I love, I'm very passionate about the generation uh, that, that God is raising up, and we're going to be praying over them. But as we talk about cheering on a generation, I, I do want to acknowledge that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And you realize over the last 50 years, uh, over 63 million babies have been aborted in the womb. That's like the genocide of an entire generation. And it's disproportionately affected minority communities, unfortunately, in our nation. At the same time, when it's even affecting the direction of national elections, the abortion issue, and, and the passionate desire to be able to take away life in the womb, at the same time, you and I have probably walked with family members or friends who've had unwanted miscarriages or stillbirths in the incredibly grief and agony that is because it is the loss of life. And so we live with this kind of schizophrenia regarding life in the womb in our culture, but we want to lift high life, whether in the womb or out of the womb, and we believe that God is building another and next generation that he is raising up. So let's go to it. We're going to go to 1 Samuel 7, first of all, the end of 1 Samuel 7, which will introduce chapter 8. Verse 15, 1 Samuel 7, Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. There's no king, but, and there had not, there had just been just spiritual drift and chaos. God raised up Samuel. And he continued as Israel's leader, their spiritual leader, their judicial leader uh, throughout his life. And from year to year, Samuel went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. So he's covering quite a bit of ground in Israel geographically. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. That wasn't far from Jerusalem, Ramah. And there he also held court for Israel. So the country would come to him in Ramah. And he also built an altar there to the Lord. However, uh, we pick it up right in the next verse, which is Samuel 8, verse 1. When Samuel grew old, when Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. And so we're, we're doing fine so far. 
I mean, Samuel has two sons. He gives them every opportunity in life, and he turns over his work to them. However, the tragedy of this story is verse 3. But his sons did not follow his ways. His sons didn't follow his ways. My heart aches constantly as a pastor. Uh, As I walk with some of you over your children who when they became adults, maybe they even grew up here at Central or they grew up with you wherever you raised them in strong churches. When they became adults, they turned away. We're finding this happening all the time. It says for Samuel... His sons turned aside after dishonest gain. They accepted bribes and they perverted justice. In spite of the spiritual influence of Samuel's life, these young men became intoxicated with themselves, incurably greedy and exploitive of other human beings. I mean, they just corrupted. They just went corrupt and crooked in spite of having the godliest man in Israel as their father. But they made a choice, they did not go his ways. We're seeing this happen in our nation pretty broadly. Hurts me to even put this quote on the screen, but in the recent book, The Great De-Churching, Davis and Graham write, more people have left the church in America in the last 25 years than all the new people who became Christians from the first great awakening in the 1700s, the second great awakening in the 1800s, and Billy Graham crusades in the 20th century all combined. I mean, more have left in the last 25 years than over those 200 years have come in to faith. And I think the church is part, I think we're partly to blame for that. And our our substituting substance in discipleship with, with celebrity and hype But I think the devil's responsible for this too. I just believe the devil is fighting tooth and nail to destroy spiritually a generation that God's got his hand on that he's trying to raise up. I want to say something to you parents, first of all, although most of the message is going to be to those of you under 30, and I want everybody else to listen in to see where they fit. But to you parents, I, I just want to say, we got some of the best parents in the world. I'm so impressed with what I see you doing with your children right now. Uh, raising some of the best kids I could imagine. Um, you, you're really remarkable, and you're working really hard. And some of you have both spouses needing to work, and yet you're so invested in your kids, and, and uh, you're, you're discipling your children. You're not just leaving it up to the church. We are always your reinforcing voice, but... You're taking primary responsibility for spiritual leadership. You're raising world-class kids, and I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm so impressed. We have an amazing set of parents. In fact, let's lift it up for our parents in this congregation. Amazing set of parents in this congregation. Yes. But here, and we're going to just read those verses one more time. This is the heartbreaker for parents. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders gave them every opportunity they needed to succeed, but his sons did not follow his ways. And this, this is the reality, the heartbreak, as, as, as in our whole nation we're seeing a general departure from faith and church, deconstructing, de-churching, everything. 
Uh, thank God for parents who are leading their kids the opposite direction. But the fact is, kids grow old. They grow up, they leave our homes, and they make their own decisions. And that can be heartbreaking. I know of few greater heartbreaks than children who walk away from the Lord uh, for a parent. But I, I just want to say to you, parents, hold on in faith. We're standing with you in faith for your kids. We're, we're praying for your kids. I know in your small groups, you're praying for your kids. And, and I want you to know there's hope. We did a funeral right here two days ago for a 37-year-old young man who very unexpectedly passed away last week. And he grew up here, actually, but walked, walked away from the Lord in his adult years. But there was a praying mom who did not give up and who did not sever relationship. And thank God that young man at 36 years old last summer came back to the Lord, uh, not imagining he'd die a year later. There's another mom that usually, she's not here today, she usually sits right down there, four back. I've known her for years. I knew her son when we were both teenagers. And uh, her son walked away from the Lord, even though we all went to the same church, had the same upbringing spiritually. But she was telling me just a few months ago that after 40 years, her son returned to Jesus. Hallelujah. And I want to tell you, God can reclaim our children. Sometimes when we pray for kids who have walked away from the Lord, we, we, we just say, Jesus, in your name, we claim them, and we claim the call and purpose of God that is still on their lives, and we are believing you. And people make their own decisions, but we're not going to be passive about it. We're going to fight the fight of faith for our kids because God wants to raise up a generation. And the problem is when you, when you do walk away from the Lord, you, you often damage your life in such serious ways. So you may come back 40 years later, but you got so, much, so many issues you got to deal with, so much bondage, so much addiction in your life. And Jesus can bring you, but it's better never to walk away in the first place. Listen, you don't need to walk away. My dad was saved at 12 years old. He never did walk away from the Lord. He died at 75. My grandfather was saved at 50 years old, gave his life to Christ, and he never walked away till he died at 99. I mean, you can do that. I was saved when I was like five, six, seven, eight years old. I don't remember exactly. And I've never walked away from him. He, he is worth following to the day I die. You don't need to walk away from Jesus, but this sometimes happens. And it's one of the most grievous things when we see it happen. And, and just one more thing. Uh, one more thing to you, to parents. Um, there, there are a couple of problems we can fall into, and this is not a parenting sermon, but a couple of problems. The first I call the overly passive problem. Let's stay involved in our kids' lives. I know you're busy. I know you're working. I kind of feel this was Saul, Sa Samuel's problem. You can't blame kids walking away from the Lord on the parents, uh, and we carry too much guilt about that stuff anyway. But at the other, on the other hand, I think you, Samuel traveled all the time, and when he was back at home, I mean, all Israel was coming to hold court with him. You, we just read all that stuff. And it, you have this sense that he kind of stayed uninvolved with, with his kids' lives. And he was just a little passive. And he was passive with some discipline, passive with some boundaries. Do you realize that studies show that if kids have no boundaries, you know, and we want to say, well, if I ask my kid, 
to do something they don't want to do, I might injure them emotionally, and they'll be on a therapist couch when they're 40 years old. You know what? Uh, when your two-year-old doesn't want to go to bed, that means squat. That means nothing. And, and, and when your five-year-old wants to steal candy from the local store, I mean, of course you're going to need to put boundaries around that. These young men grew up corrupt and crooked. It was like there was no boundaries around them. And when there's no boundaries around kids' lives, that you just start feel they feel unloved. I mean, study after study shows this. They feel unloved. Yeah, I mean, no, the loving thing is not to let your kids just do what they want and spin out of control. And so when we're overly passive or overly absent in our spiritually, in our parenting, um, negative things can develop. Or we can err on the other side and, and that whole overly protective thing. And you know what? Some of us, in, in, in the hopes of being great parents and our kids having character, I mean, sometimes we can become so rigid in our family lives that our kids never have fun. And, and Sandy and I have two married daughters now who each have a child, but when they were growing up, I mean, if we could trust them with something, uh, we, de- we generally didn't add rules and then threaten them if they broke the rules. I mean, better to learn them, better to inculcate what it is to be a person who can be trusted. And, and let's not be overly rigid. Let's not be rules-focused where we don't need rules necessarily. Yes, we need boundaries, but we can go so far the other extreme. Or even in our parenting, we call them helicopter parents. I mean, we just are so involved with our kids that, that we don't let them... We don't let them ever work out their own problems. I mean, every emotional owie, we got to fly in there and meet with the principal and threaten to, a, to have a lawsuit against the parents of the little kid who just hurt my kid's feelings. I mean, I mean we're, we're just in there. And I worry that we're crippling a generation. We have a generation that just can't cope. I mean, they can't do anything without mommy being there. And, and I'll tell you, when you go to your first job interview, your mommy's not going to be there. And you're going to get hit with some pretty raw reality because nobody else in your world thinks you're entitled to anything. And you are going to hear things that you don't agree with. And there are going to be no safe places. I mean, one of the greatest things we can do is, is protect our kids in the important ways, you know, from starvation and violence and sexual abuse. But in other ways, not overly protect our kids so that they do not develop the coping skills they will need to manage life in an appropriate way. So, let me go back to the first thing I said. We've got the greatest parents in the world here at Central Assembly. I'm not talking about any of you. I'm talking about maybe some of those who are listening or something. Now I want to talk to the next generation. I'm going to go fast. I want to say three things to the next generation, first of all. As I sort of hinted at a few minutes ago, you don't need to do this. You don't need to cave into the world's way and settle for God's second best. You don't need to do this. And I want you to see how this began to happen. Samuel's getting old. His sons are corrupt, and he's made them the leaders of Israel. They caved into the world's ways. So verse 4 of 1 Samuel 8, as the story continues, so all the elders of Israel gathered together. They came to Samuel to complain about his boys. 
They came to Samuel at Ramah, his home, and they said, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. So now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And it's especially that last phrase that grieves my heart. That, that pull just to be like the world. They didn't have a king. They had a spiritual leadership. They had wise counsel for determining issues of justice. But they wanted a king so that they could be just like all the other nations. And the pull of the world upon us, I just want to be like the world. I'm tired of being different. I'm tired of always being in the minority in my class. I'm tired of people thinking I'm weird. They think I'm weird because I don't get drunk. I don't ever, I don't ever curse people out. I, 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 I don't sleep around. I, 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 you know what? I don't party with them, and they think I don't have any fun. They think I'm just weird. But you know what else they think about your life? They say, you got something I don't have. You're steady in a way I don't, I'm not. You got something about you. You seem to have a joy and a peace that I can't figure out because you don't get drunk with us and you don't do drugs and, 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 and you're just not in the party scene like virtually everybody else and you are standing alone because you belong to another kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. You belong to the kingdom of God. And you're defined by the fact that you are in Christ. You are defined by what Jesus says about you. You're called. You are forgiven. You are blessed. You, are, you have my spirit and you have my word. You, l- listen, it, it's tough. It's tough when you're sitting in a classroom and, and, and the teacher who has an agenda, especially you're going to go to college, you're going to find some professors, they actually have an agenda to deconstruct your faith. And I mean, when you go to, if you go to secular college, I did for nine years, uh, I, I experienced some of this. I mean, they want to, I mean, it's your agenda. All this um, university is a place of free inquiry, of, of ideas, and, uh, and, and, and all of that stuff. I mean, that's a bunch of ballyhoo. There, there are people in the academic environment that are much more committed to indoctrination and destroying your faith. And when they say in a class once in a while, oh, if you're a Christian, would you, who, who here in this class is a Christian? You, you don't even want to raise your hand with two or three other people in that class because you know, you know the hell that's going to come down on your head as they take you on and shame you in front of everybody. I've seen it happen. But I want to tell you, you don't need to look or act like the world. You can stand by the power of God. We don't need. But this was this, for Israel, this compelling thing. We just want to be like the world. We just want to be like other nations. We don't like being different. We don't like being weird. We don't like breaking the cultural rules of all the idol-worshiping nations. So verse 6, so when they said, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, of course, Samuel took this personally. (laughs) As he wasn't proud of his boys and the choices they made. So Samuel, as a dad, takes this personally. And he's, he, he, and, and he's displeased, and he prays to the Lord. And the Lord said, look, listen to all that the people are saying to you, because it's not you they've rejected. Samuel, in the end, I know they're criticizing you, your boys, and they think they, they just need what the world has. But it's not you that they've rejected in the end. They have rejected me, God says, as their king. 
And you know, parents, you may feel guilty. Your kids may have really spun off as adults and they're really destroying their lives and the guilt can be terrible. But at some point, we have to realize that ultimately, even our kids aren't accountable to us. They're accountable to the living God. And when they stand before Jesus someday, you're not going to be there. They're going to be there all alone. And they're not going to be able to point at you, even as a parent. They're going to have to take responsibility for their own decisions and their own lives before the Lord. And God says, they've rejected me. So verse 21, when Samuel heard that all the people said, that all the people said uh, what they said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And give them a king. Let them be like the world if that's what they want. And he actually gives them what they want. That's terrifying to me. And he lets them settle for second best. And that, that brings us to where it goes next. Brings me to my sec- the second thing I want to say. The first thing is don't, don't cave. Don't cave into the world. Whether you're under 30 or over 70, for that matter. I know some people over 70 have walked away from the Lord just because they don't want to be different. And they're a little hurt. And they've given up eternity and a relationship with God. But no matter what age you are, don't cave into the world. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You'll never hear that in the media, but it's not worth it to run from God and rebel against him. God said, they've rebelled against me. You don't do that to your creator. May the fear of God grip us. But here's the second thing I want to say. Balance in your spiritual growth. If you're going to stay strong, you need to balance the intellectual and the experiential in your faith. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, they've got to find a new king. And... Uh, it turns out in chapter 9 now of 1 Samuel that a man by the name of Kish had a son named Saul. Saul's going to become the first king of Israel. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. There's that tall, dark, and handsome thing again. I'm going, what's, what's wrong with short, fair, and questionable? There's nothing wrong with that. But it has its place. So there was a tall, dark, and handsome young man, the son of Kish. His name was Saul. And when Samuel caught sight of Saul, whoo. And this time even God agreed. And the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. He's going to become the first king of Israel. They want a king. They want to be like the world. Here's your man. Samuel goes on and starts telling Saul what he needs to do next. And in verse 5 of chapter 10, pushing the story farther, Samuel, picking up mid-conversation, says, and, and, and Samuel said to Saul, after that, you're going to go to Gibeah of God, over there where there's a Philistine outpost. And as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps, being played before them, and they will be prophesying. So there's going to be this group of of prophets coming. They're going to have the worship team out with all their instruments, and they're going to be prophesying. And when you see them, 
Samuel says to Saul, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. I love that verse, because that's what happens when the Spirit of God comes upon us. That's what we need if we're going to stand. We need a fire in our heart that is greater than the allure of the world. We need a passion in our heart that's greater than than the affections we're tempted to have that our world is constantly trying to cultivate in us. We need the fire and spirit of God. And he said, the spirit of God's gonna come on you and you will become a different person. You're gonna be changed by the power of God. Now, I think the intellectual part's really important, but you also need the experiential part. I had a friend uh, at the University of Minnesota, he was in my aerospace classes with me, he was an atheist, and I watched him walk the journey to becoming a Christian. And initially, his conversion was an intellectual conversion because of the implications of the law of, second law of thermodynamics, because of what he learned about the authenticity and originality of the biblical text, what he learned about what Christ actually taught and the evidence for his resurrection, he intellectually converted to Christ. I remember two weeks later, he didn't tell me at first, and I said, uh, Larry, you, you seem different. And he told me, ah, I became a Christian two weeks ago. I said, I thought you looked different the last two weeks. But you know, there's still issues that he had to work through. And just an intellectual con- conversion wasn't enough. But it's important. You need to know why you believe what you believe. If you're going to stand these days, you need to know why. But with that, later in Larry's life, he had the encounters with the Holy Spirit that gave him a true heart affection for Jesus and freedom in his life from the junk of the past. And uh, after I had my heart attack, he contacted me last fall. And uh, 50 years later, He still has a heart on fire for God and a mind that is unbelievably bright and sharp. You know, this can happen. It's the both and. That's why I like to say we, our church, we want to be scripturally thoughtful and spiritually engaging. That's what it is. It's having both. Um, Seraphim Langer, in, in his work, Losing Our Religion, He writes, we'll put this on the screen, uh, what factors help Christian youth maintain their faith into adulthood? I mean, what what are those factors? And a major research project called the National Study of Youth and Religion found the following three factors. Number one, the young person's parents practice the faith in the home and in daily life, not just in public church settings. I have to say this really helped me as a kid. My, My parents really were the same at home as they were at church. And I've, I've seen so many kids walk away from the Lord because home life seemed to have no sense of the fruit of the Spirit or a Jesus-centeredness to it. But, but my parents looked that way when they went to church. That hypocrisy is hard to look past. But, but people who tend, young people who tend to stay with the faith, uh, they saw the same thing at home as they saw in church. Secondly, the young person had at least one significant adult mentor or friend other than parents, other than parents, who practice the faith seriously. And uh, I know Steve Pulis in his doctoral work came up with the same conclusion. Uh, the thing that does, that keeps us, 
is having a connection. Thank God for Pastor Chris. Thank God, our youth pastor, and Pastor Casey, our middle school pastor. Thank God for youth, those of you who are, who are volunteering in our kids' ministry, volunteering in our youth ministries. I mean, you make a huge difference. And then the young person, three, has at least had at least one significant spiritual experience before the age of 17. Saul knew intellectually he was going to be the next king, but he needed the Spirit of God to come upon him to become a different person. And I just want to tell you, if you're young, if you're under 30, um, do, the, do, the, do the scholarly work, do the thinking work, do the intellectual work, but don't just leave it there. Everything doesn't rise and fall on my perception with my brain. You need an encounter with the power of the Holy Spirit. You need that. And then lastly, oh, lastly, I just want to say this. You know, you don't, you don't need to cave into the world. And you can grow intellectually and spiritually in an experiential way. But I, I just want to encourage you not to let your insecurities keep you from obeying Jesus. Because even though the Spirit of God may have come upon you, even though there are issues, even though there's wonderful open doors God's giving you, even though you might have had the right mentoring, you know, there's just stuff in us that still makes us hesitant to really go all the way. And this happened with Saul. So they're now going to crown Saul as the king. Samuel's got Israel all together. And uh, they're about to crown Saul, the king. But verse 21, it's kind of humorous, actually. But when they looked for him, that's Saul, they couldn't find him. So they inquired further of the Lord. Uh, has he gotten here yet? Maybe he's stuck in traffic somewhere. Maybe he missed flights, like I might tomorrow. Um, has, he, has he gotten here yet? And the Lord said, never play hide and seek with the Lord. He always knows where you are. And the Lord said, he has hidden himself among the supplies. Uh, one translation says, he has hidden himself among the stuff. Here, he's going to be, he's handsomer and taller than everybody else in the country. He's just been proclaimed the next king of it, the first king of Israel. And he's hiding Uh, you're considered Gen Z if you were born after year 2000. And you, uh, man, I'm cheering you on. You guys are amazing. They say 90, 75% of Gen Zers uh, want to start their own business. I mean, you guys are incredibly entrepreneurial. Uh, you, you are tech savvy. You are creative. Um, my generation, a baby boomer, tended to be pretty idealistic. Your generation is more pragmatic. That's going to help you really cope with the realities of life. Uh, even your generation's moving a little more conservative in some of your values. I mean, you got a lot going for you. Unfortunately, because you were raised on social media and you survived all the relational disruptions of COVID, your generation, of all American generations, suffers the most from anxiety and depression, and even suicidal ideation. It breaks our hearts. You live on social media, and you've lost every reference point for your identity, 
and you, you can't help but come out but a loser. And then what COVID did to all of us, you lived through that at a highly developmental time in your life. And there are a lot of reasons to stay broken. But I want you to get up for the fight. I want you to focus on one thing. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and I want to obey Jesus. And I'm not going to let all this stuff that kind of smothers me right now. I'm not going to let it be the last word of my life. I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to get the prayer. I'm going to get the counsel. I'm, I'm going to get the, the I, I'm going to meet with a youth pastor. I'm going to, I'm going to do what it takes to not let my stuff keep me from full obedience to the mission of Jesus. In a world where three, four, five billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus, we need you. Don't let your insecurities keep you from obeying the mission of Jesus. Don't let your insecurities keep you from reaching out to significant people in your lives. Don't let your insecurities keep, write you off. Don't live with that broken self-esteem. Just be, just be matter-of-factly humble and go for what Jesus has called you to. And I believe, I believe we can help you do that. I believe the Spirit of God can cheer you on. I believe there's healing. I believe there's deliverance from depression. I believe that God can help you be what you want to be.